Father God, thank you so much that you are the king of this universe. And thank you that your kingdom is expanding. Uh, it cannot be stopped. And Father, as we look at your word today, please help us to uh, trust in you as the king and trust in the message of your kingdom. Uh, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the word nice has largely lost any meaning or power it once had. How did you find the movie? It's nice. Uh, how's the food? It's nice. Uh, what do you think about that boy? He's nice. It's too vague, too fuzzy. Too uncertain. Are you genuinely making a compliment? Are you just being polite? Uh, are you struggling for words? Now, there's a great line in one of the novels of Jane Austen, where one of the characters say, "This is a very nice day, and we're taking a very nice walk, and you are two very nice young ladies." Oh, it's a very nice word indeed. It does for everything. And it's not that nice is a bad word necessarily, but that we've lost confidence in its potency. Now here at SMAC, we talk a lot about the gospel, I hope. And that is surely right. After all, the gospel is that great announcement that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our sins have been forgiven, God's kingdom has been inaugurated, and victory over death is won. Elsewhere, Paul calls it the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he, said, he says that it is of first importance. It's good news good news that our lives are not dependent on us, not about us. It's good news that doesn't just help us, but saves us. And that's why we often talk about being gospel-centered. The gospel is the word that gives life. It is the word that shapes our lives. And it is the word that we bring into the lives of others. Like the word nice, however, there is a danger that we so overuse the phrase gospel-centered that we become over-familiar with it. Like the word nice, there's a danger that we just embrace it as a catch-all term but never seek to consider its heart. And like the word nice, we might find ourselves losing confidence in its potency. Now, the word nice, a long, long time ago, used to mean foolish and ignorant. And when we face opposition, when we are deemed irrelevant, when we find that there's no progression, we're tempted to believe the same about the gospel. Foolish, powerless, only for the ignorant. The book of Acts, however, 
insists differently. Listen up, it shouts. The gospel is breaking news. It changes everything and it turns your world upside down. Every so often, Luke comes up with a summary statement to stress his point. So in Acts 6 verse 7, Luke tells us, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 12 verse 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Uh, And we saw this last week too as well, 16 verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. God is working through his word. And in our passage today, in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 40, Luke wants us to draw our confidence again from the gospel. So uh, if you close your Bibles, it would be great if you could open them again. Far from being foolish, far from being irrelevant, far from being powerless, the gospel is the wisdom of God, and the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And Luke begins by adjusting our glasses to see that the gospel is God's heart for the world. The gospel is God's heart for the world. And that's in verses 6 to 10. As we join Paul and his team, At the start of this journey, we find that they are essentially on a return trip. Now you might remember from last week that Paul thought it was a good idea to visit all the Christians in the cities that he previously visited. But their travel plans, uh, it doesn't quite go according to plan. And so they start off in Antioch. I don't know if you can see it, but it's right sort of there. And then they head through Derby and Lystra, and they arrive at the other Antioch in Pisidia. Then they try to go to Asia, which is in the southwestern region, and maybe they're trying to head for Ephesus, which is sort of on the coast. But the Holy Spirit tells them that's a no-no. Okay, time for plan B. Why don't we head up north for Bithynia? And that's roughly where modern Turkey is located now. And Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was written, is also located there. But again, the Spirit of Jesus says, Now, I know Turkey is a nice place to visit. Uh, They had more tourist arrivals than Malaysia last year. But, sorry, next time. So if Paul, he can't go up, and he can't go down, next logical option, he goes left. So he takes the East-West Link Expressway and he ends up in Troas, passing by Mysia. Now so far, all Paul and his team have seen are the Dilarang Masot signposts, the no-entry signposts. But now, at Troas, there's like a flashing neon billboard saying, uh, this way please. And that comes in the form of a vision. A man appears to Paul and urges him to head further west across the sea into Macedonia. 
So the team, they hold a meeting, and a consensus is swiftly reached. So that's where God is calling us to preach the gospel. So uh, when's the next possible ferry? Let's go and catch it. As we read this remarkable travelogue, we can't help but be curious. Um, actually, yeah, how in the world did the Holy Spirit stop them? And the answer is, we don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe they received a prophecy of some sort. Or maybe they had a really, really strong impression that they couldn't go to Asia or Bithynia. Or maybe it was true circumstances. You know, a volcano exploded or something. We're just not told. What we are told, however, is that this is clearly God's hand. So verse 6, forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Verse 10, God had called us. Holy Spirit, Jesus, God. The triune God is clearly at work directing his messengers of the gospel further into Gentile territory. And that's the big thing. Still, we are left with this question of guidance and it might be a good idea to briefly address it here. And the question is, is this how we should expect the Holy Spirit to guide? And the answer seems to be, well, yes, and no. Have a look back at chapter 15, verse 36. How does Paul decide to make this particular missionary journey? Interestingly, he's not waiting around for a vision or a mystical experience. He just goes ahead and makes the decision. Now, I'm sure it wasn't rash, and I'm sure he prayed about it. But he still made the decision. And last week, we saw in his disagreement with Barnabas over whether they should take Mark or not, they come to a compromise, they split up without waiting for some supernatural sign. And again, in choosing Timothy 16 verse 2 to 3, that's last week as well, Paul is simply exercising his sound judgment. And actually, when we look at the book of Acts as a whole, it seems like uh, Paul seems to have done plenty of strategic planning. He tended to visit major cities located on major routes, and maybe that's a factor in his decisions and his attempts to go to Asia or Bithynia. So, in other words, Paul isn't waiting around for the kind of guidance we see in verses 6 to 10. Now, certainly, God can guide in this way should he choose to, as he obviously does here. And we should be open to such an experience. But notice, such guidance is not sought out. Such guidance is always on God's initiative. So don't worry if you never experience guidance in this manner before. And notice too that Paul and his team 
they are still talking, they still talk this vision over. So verse 10. They conclude that they were to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So they see nothing wrong with deliberating over such decisions. And similarly, we don't have to feel paralyzed when we make decisions. We have to exercise wisdom, sometimes caution, sometimes bonus, always with an eye on God's priorities as found in the scriptures, always in prayer, often taking counsel from others, often with some struggle, but we can make them. God guides in those ways too. Now guidance is obviously a big issue and if you want to think about it more, I think there are talks from Spectago last year available. Uh, you can find them on the website. So perhaps you could have a look at those. But let's not forget what the main point of this section is. The spread of the gospel expresses God's heart for the world. And that's why Paul is in Macedonia, deep in Gentile territory. Now the British pastor John Stott told a story that has left a lasting impression on me. He once stayed in a little town while he was on a study leave and he joined the little church there. And he enjoyed the warm fellowship and the preaching that he found there. But there was one thing that left him grieving deeply. All the discussions and preaching revolved solely around the concerns of the church and sometimes the happenings in the town. I could only conclude, Stott says, that they, are God, they worship a village God. Our God isn't a village God. He's the great big God of the universe. He's the missionary God who wants everyone in this world to know of what Jesus has done. And so, should we. Maybe you've wondered sometimes why in our public prayers here at SMAC, we often pray for people we've never heard of in hard-to-pronounce places. And the reason is simply because God cares as much for the people in Malawi as in Malaysia. He's the God is as much God in Antigua as in Zambia. And our prayers as a church should reflect that. Now as we seek to reflect God's heart for the world, does that mean we are going to have to uproot ourselves to become missionaries overseas? Well, yes, maybe for some of us. But it doesn't have to mean that. It's simply to have a heart for our non-Christian friends wherever we are. It's to find opportunities to love them in word and deed. And it's to be willing to reach those who are unlike us. Now, in today's globalized age, it's easier than ever before to come into contact with groups of people uh, who are different, uh, be it in our schools or in our workplaces. 
and I think this statistic is outdated now, but when I was in the UK, um, something like 80 to 90% of international students would have never been inside a British home during their time there. And that's a shockingly high number. But wonderfully, some of my British brothers and sisters in Christ were a great example to me. Uh, they were willing to offer hospitality to those from overseas. They were willing to work hard at friendships. And they were often try to take uh, every opportunity to share the gospel. They were reflecting God's heart. And when I was in Oxford, I counted it a great privilege to, have, to be able to do gospel work amongst Japanese postgraduates. Now, according to research, Japanese people are 200% more likely to become Christians when they are abroad. Now, I didn't have to take, take, I didn't have to take a plane to Japan, uh, although there was, I had a missionary friend who was uh, trying to get me to go to Japan. But because they were taking the planes to come to, to England. And I think there are people who do not know the Lord who are boarding the planes for KL to where we are. Maybe there lies one opportunity for the spread of the gospel. Now look now gives us three episodes that show the power of the gospel. Three different individuals, three different situations, but the same gospel, the gospel of God, unleash in each case. So firstly, the gospel is God's power to open hearts. The gospel is God's power to open hearts. And that's verse 11 to 14. Now Paul and the others, they go to Philippi, probably because it was the leading city in the region. And as his normal practice, he goes to the Jew first. But there's no synagogue around. So Paul, hearing of a little prayer group by the riverside, heads there instead. And he speaks to the women there. Now among their number is Lydia, who is uh, a wealthy trader uh, and who was in the business of selling purple dyes. She isn't Jewish herself, but she's called a worshipper of God which means that she feared Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what we get here is a lovely little picture of how God works. So let me read verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul preached Christ, God opened Lydia's heart. Paul preached Christ, God opened Lydia's heart. Nothing dramatic, nothing spectacular. Don't be fooled. The greatest transformation of the world is taking place right there. Lydia, by God's grace, 
is placing her trust in Jesus. So don't despair if you never ever had a dramatic conversion experience. Don't feel second class. God works in all sorts of ways. Lydia's quiet testimony is as precious to God as Paul's breathtaking story. Though one had more drama than the other, both are supernatural acts of God. Both are a result of God's amazing grace. And if you put your faith today in Jesus Christ, that's no less a work of the Spirit. The Gospel opens people's hearts. And be encouraged too. For we don't need to resort to tricks to share the Gospel. We don't have to resort to manipulation. The Gospel is fine on its own. We preach Christ God opens people's hearts. And that's his modus operandi. Now, I didn't have the joy of seeing any of the Japanese students I worked with last year become Christians. But I know my job is to preach Christ, not change hearts. That's God's job. And my hope is that I'm faithful in what I did. And my prayer and assurance that as others preach Christ to them, God will open their hearts. Two, the gospel is God's power to unite believers. It's the basis for unity among God's people, whether Jew or Gentile. And that's verse 15. Almost immediately, Lydia and her household is baptized. And she then urges them to come and stay at her house. Now, this is not just an act of hospitality, though it is that. Lydia is basically saying, do you accept my conversion as authentic? Do you truly regard me as your sister in Christ? Then come and be my guest. And Paul and his company Seize the opportunity. Yes, certainly. Here is another chance to show how radical the repercussions of the gospel are. No longer need need there be any divide between Jew or Gentile. And years later, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, will explain how God destroyed the old classifications. So that's uh, Ephesians. Uh, next slide. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So previously, if you had a form, there were two boxes to tick. One said, Yahudi, Jew, and the other said, Lain, Lain, others. Uh, now, there's just one box to take, and that's Christian. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we now go from the mainstream to the margins of society. And here we see that the gospel is God's power to liberate. Uh, the gospel is God's power to liberate. And that's verses 16 to 18. Poe and company again go to the place of prayer. And this time they encounter a slave girl. Completely utterly helpless slave girl. And slave to an evil spirit, powerless even to control her own lips. And enslaved to shameless peddlers who exploit her fortune-telling for their own fortune-making. This is the very picture of hopelessness. Still, isn't what she's saying harmless enough? In fact, doesn't it benefit the gospel? Verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I mean, isn't that true? And it is true. But the source of her information isn't God. It's Satan. And that's a clue that not, uh, all is not as it appears to be. For Satan is a master manipulator. Now, what seems to be on the surface to be good for the gospel actually proves to be the opposite. For one thing, her loud cries were probably disruptive. Now, imagine you were there listening to Paul preach. Uh, every time Paul gets to some key point of his message, suddenly all you can hear is the wailings of this girl. That's all you can hear. Furthermore, the integrity of the gospel itself was under threat. The gospel message was being associated, even if unintentionally, with fortune-telling, a practice forbidden in scripture. Perhaps her owners could even say, Eh, my product, good one you know. Not only endorsed by Apollo 1, but also got stamp of approval from this other god. Christ. Plus, the slave girl's message, possibly, might have very subtly put the attention on the messengers and not the message itself. And similarly, we should take care not to dilute the gospel. Consulting your local BOMO or your local feng shui expert is inconsistent with gospel practices. A diluted gospel is a diminished gospel which has little power to effect true change. Now, ironically enough, the slave girl's very broadcast of this way of salvation for others only serves to highlight her own need for salvation. The question is raised. Is this the authentic gospel? Does this gospel really point to the way of salvation? And we're about to find out. <laughs> 
Paul, uh, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now we don't know why Paul waited this long. Uh, it could be that he knew that casting out this demon out of her would have spelled instant trouble. And maybe he didn't want a premature end to his public ministry. But in any case, this very picture of hopelessness is now transformed into a picture of salvation. Yes, the gospel saves. Yes, the gospel liberates the authority of Jesus, the one whom this gospel is from, the one whom this gospel is about, is recognized by the evil spirit. And he has to come out. The power of the gospel is authenticated. Now, in the early 20th century, the Lunbawang community in Sarawak were in an absolutely helpless, hopeless situation. They were completely enslaved to duak or rice wine. And if you look up the official government documents in 1936, you will find recorded there the Lumbawangs have the dirtiest longhouses around uh, and they lie around drunk or dead. It was enough for the governor at that time to declare it would be better if they all just died out. And that was not an unreasonable expectation because the population had dropped from about 20,000 in the late 19th century to 3,000 by 1937. But God had a different plan. Christian missionaries were determined to take the gospel to the Lunbawans, even though they had to climb through difficult terrain. And the gospel turned their world upside down. They repented and believed. They put aside their drink bottles and they went back to the fields to work. It was enough for the governor to say to the missionaries later, you have done more good here in three years than the government has done in 40. The gospel liberates. Now some of you sitting here might not be Christians today. And friends, I urge you too to see that the gospel Liberates. It is a safe refuge from God's wrath for guilty sinners like you and me. It offers freedom from slavery to things that promise much but never deliver, like a career or a relationship. It confers upon you the status beloved child of God and gives you an eternal inheritance in the age to come. Friends, the gospel is God's power to liberate. Trust in Jesus because it's the best decision you could ever make. The gospel not only liberates though, it also provokes. It also provokes. 
and that's verse 19 to 24. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, you can never hide from its repercussions. The gospel changes lives, and those changes don't always make everyone happy. Verse 19. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, angry at the loss of their golden goose, uh, the owners politicized the issue. Verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Listen closely and you can just catch their patronizing tone. These people have to be put in their proper place. They are a threat to national harmony. And they take the moral high ground. But their actions don't actually match up. I mean, a mob gathers, they beat them, and then they throw Paul and Silas into prison. Gospel people will always encounter opposition at some point in their lives. Evil never wants to see good triumph. And some will find the gospel completely unpalatable. And Paul, in Galatians 5 verse 11, can even call the gospel the offense of the cross. To talk about the uniqueness of Christ, for example, is very hard in a pluralistic society like Malaysia's. We fear we'll be mocked should we even as so much mention the subject. And others might even take the moral high ground. These Christians advocate a hateful kind of intolerance that we Malaysians do not accept. Never mind that this is untrue. True tolerance does not come about when we seek to downplay our differences as if they don't matter. That's simply a lack of conviction. True tolerance is when we acknowledge that there are significant differences in our religious positions without ever losing sight of the need to be respectful of human persons. But don't be surprised to find strong and even irrational reactions to the gospel from time to time. The gospel provokes. Next, the gospel is God's power even in bleak times. Now imagine you're in Antioch and you just picked up the latest missionary letter and you read Poe and Silas oh wait a minute, they're in jail eh? I thought these guys were the anointed ones I mean didn't they get a vision? Ayo, where did they go wrong? Ayo, not enough faith ah. it's obedience we don't exactly equate suffering with success don't we? Do we? I mean, if the gospel is truly God's power, then why can't Paul just perform a few magic tricks to get himself out of jail? But look again. Because in verse 25, what we find there is actually truly astounding. 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And they are showcasing the power of the gospel in their lives. Now, I'm sure Paul and Silas were human like you and me. They were probably pretty discouraged. Uh, Maybe they even had a few doubts. But they know God. They trust God. And so they turn to Him in petition and praise. The result? Verse 25 again. The prisoners were listening to them. Father witness. Brothers and sisters, the power of the gospel does not rest on our external circumstances. It does not weaken in a hostile workplace with unsympathetic colleagues. It does not wither in the fiery furnace of an unbelieving home. It does not waver in the face of public persecution. What other power could hold prisoners in place when they had the chance to escape? I mean, come on! Huge earthquake, doors open, bonds unfastened. Of course the jailer supposed that the prisoners had escaped. That's what it says in verse 27. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Jail open, of course prisoners go out. So what a shock for the jailer when he hears the sound of Paul's voice. Do not harm yourselves, for we are all here. I mean, what's going on? Aren't these the guys who were proclaiming the way of salvation? The jailer realizes that he's been rescued from death by suicide. And if these guys could save him in this way, then their message of salvation was surely worth listening to. So, Verse 30, he falls on his knees and cries out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And as Paul preached Christ, God opened the jailer's heart. Prioritizing the gospel kept Paul in that physical prison. Proclaiming the gospel let the jailer out of that spiritual prison. And not just his, but like Lydia, those of his household too. Now, things look bleak for Paul and Silas, and it looked bleak for the progress of the gospel. But God's gospel cannot be caged. Imprisonment actually opened doors for Paul and Silas, not closed them. What an encouragement it should be to us. God is with us every step of the way, whether in good times or bad. It's time to wrap up the rest of the passage. And we get a glimpse of how the gospel drives Paul's actions. And that's in verses 34 to 40. So morning comes... Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates and offered a quiet release. But Paul is concerned to correct a grave injustice. Now, as a Roman citizen, he is entitled to a fair trial 
before he can be beaten and bound. But Paul is not simply standing up for his rights. He is standing up to make sure that such a scenario will not be repeated in the future. He wants the Roman judges to know that they can't get away with things so easily. And in doing so, he is providing a safeguard for the young Philippian church as well as for future missionary work. Here is a man who was concerned for others before himself. Now he's bloodied and he's bruised. But as soon as he exits prison, what does he do? He goes straight to Lydia's house to encourage the other Christians. And later on, in his letter to the Philippians, he could even tenderly share with them, It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's Philippians 1 verse 7. The gospel drives Paul's actions. The gospel is not foolish or irrelevant. The gospel is not just nice. It's not a word we throw around just simply because it's trendy. Being gospel-centered is more than just a slogan. The gospel is the wisdom of God and power of salvation for everyone who believes. It is the basis of unity for God's people. And it expresses God's heart for his will. My friends, we can be completely, absolutely, utterly confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shall we here at SMAC then strive to be a truly gospel-centered church? Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage where we see your gospel at work. We see the spread of your gospel and where we see the power of your gospel, that your gospel is powerful to liberate, to open people's hearts, to save. And we know that the gospel is powerful uh, no matter what our circumstances, be it good or bad. Please help us to keep trusting in you, trusting in your gospel. And please help us to live for the kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Thanks, Brian. And in our next uh, hymn, we uh, ask God uh, to enable us to keep him and his gospel uh, central in our lives. Let's stand and we sing together. Be thou my vision.